Toby Haydock here. This is Who's Round 219. I'm supposed to be an actor, you know, playing all the classical parts. I can't wait to give you my King Lear. Howl, howl, howl. That wasn't it. That's because this is Who's Round with Peter Howell, part two. Well, and that, and, and when you were at the Beavis, before you'd sort of been <coughs> joined, the, done the uh, Doctor Who theme, um, you had flirted with Doctor Who, and you'd, you'd had to augment some curious music of Carrie Blyton's on Revenge of the Cybermen. Yes. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah, I do indeed. Because yes. it's a funny old score, that. Yes. Um, Carrie had a real love of early music instru- musical instruments uh, and decided that he would use them uh, as session players on his music for Doctor Who. And um, these are things like um, crumb horns and a serpent, famously. A uh, serpent is, I think, a forerunner of the bassoon, uh, an awful lot before, uh, uh, with, with very vague tuning. I mean, <laughs> to play the serpent in tune... Uh, it, it had massive finger holes on it. For a start, you need great, great lumpy fingers <laughs> to play this thing. And uh, the result was variable. Uh, and John Nathan Turner was disappointed that it was a little bit um, empty sounding. I mean, the problem with the early instruments is they're not terribly versatile, can... can can sound a bit samey and also they haven't got a thickness of texture to them that maybe uh, John was used to with other composers so Kerry's stuff was interesting and exciting at times but it wasn't as, as thickly textured as I think John was interested in so I actually came along and added some Arp Odyssey and some a bit of Cynthia 100 and things to it um, to give it more texture, that was that was the brief anyway. And it was around because this is early Tom Baker time we're talking about. It was around that time you also did some um, sort of non not so much music but sound effects on a story called Planet of Evil. Yeah, that was actually Dick Mill's job. Uh, yeah, he was off somewhere, and I said I'd, I'd give a give it a go actually doing the sounds. Um, very different discipline, but enjoyed it really. I like to think that I, I'm sort of equally interested. In, I mean. Music is a subset of sounds, really, and and so you're dealing in sound anyway. And um, it was nice; I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's quite grueling. I was quite surprised actually. It was hard work because, as you can imagine, in those days, the, there were an awful lot of sounds to be made. I mean, the, the, what came back from the studio might have had dialogue on it, but forget anything else. Absolutely, everything else was. Uh, designed specially um, and so you know you, you, you could be looking at over a hundred sounds for one story well if there was sound I guess the very prosaic sound of you know um, foot, you know, foot on plywood that foot on plywood yeah, indeed this. foot on plywood yes the most common sound really <laughs> is that me is that I think it went away I'll just turn it I don't know if it was. It's, it's my sound. It's the same sound I've, I've got. My... Okay, uh, we carry on. I'm, unfortunately, Where... I avoid that unless I'm at a. Do- Mine's the Doctor Who theme, so I'm fine. Unless I'm at a Doctor Who convention, <laughs> and everybody's is the same. <laughs>
Sorry, uh, where were we? So, well, we, we, you're doing the sound effects. And, yeah. Um, so how did you, how did your uh, affiliation, your joining of the, the Radiophonics Workshop itself come about? And, and tell me about that, that hallowed and august institution. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, it's every bit as exciting as people imagine, but for completely different reasons. Um, I think people imagine, although if they were to think twice about it, they realise that this isn't a practical way of thinking of it, but I think a lot of people imagine the Radiophonic Workshop as being a large room, rather like a laboratory, with uh, men in white coats almost, <laughs> lining along the sides, just poring over various uh, bits of gear that are scraping and making odd noises and all that. All of that was true apart from the white coats. But obviously if you think it through, you couldn't possibly be all in the same room. That's the bit that doesn't yeah. work. Because you'd all be interfering with one another's sounds. So what it was more like was a monastery, actually. <laughs> we each had a small studio of our own. That's the only way that you could do it. And so what you imagine as a group name of workshop really was series of cells and you and this has its pluses and its minuses obviously the plus is that you can concentrate fantastically and literally enter a world of your own and and, and your, the result is that if you're letting your imagination uh, fly you can get really great results and nobody's saying you've got to be at lunch at so and so you've got to stop at five o'clock it was completely 24 hour open brief you could you, as long as you were meeting your deadlines you could meet those deadlines by working any time throughout the weekend throughout the night if you want it's a 24 hour building so but you were in this cell you see so the downside of that is that you become a little bit of a sad character. <laughs> because, you know, you sort of, like in the wintertime, you, you go in in the dark and you come out in the dark and people would say, a lovely day today, wasn't it? And you say, what was it? Because I didn't see any of it. There were no windows in my, my studio at all. And then you sort of felt, oh, that was a bit unhealthy, that's lifestyle. I better show my face at lunchtime. So you, you, you go along to lunch in the famous Maidavale canteen that is still roughly the same as it was, except they've painted out the picture of the apple with a worm crawling through it <laughs> on the wall of the canteen. That's now gone. For, I think the insurance company insisted they removed it. Um, but you go into the canteen and you wouldn't talk about what you were doing. It wasn't really because... Um, you were, what is the word, secretive about it. It really wasn't because of fear of industrial espionage. It was because you couldn't wait not to talk about it. You were so steeped in it that this was literally a bit of escapism. And there, there were some simply hilarious lunches because we were all escaping and, 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 and you know, our sort of um, sense of humour ran riot during the sort of hour, hour and a quarter for lunch. And then we went back to ourselves again. So, and that was the sort of pattern of things for many years there, which meant that we could produce uh, 
stuff that was it, it hopefully innovative and, and even more hopefully original. The slight problem with the original bit is that if you have people working so in such a solitary way, one thing doesn't happen that people take for granted now, and people come up to me sometimes and say, what are your influences? And I, I look embarrassed because I'm really not certain. I mean, I could say the shadows, but I don't think they have an awful lot to do with the output of the radiophonic workshop. Um, and part of this is because, really, they, they employed people. Desmond Briscoe was on the lookout for people who almost were, were so imaginative and creative that it was almost a disability. <laughs> that They did that before anything else. And I still find it very difficult revisiting things. I have to do for the band, actually. You know, I'd write something uh, and then literally they'd decide to come back to it. Let's do that live. And I'd be coming back to this piece that I wrote God knows how long ago. And it's not in my nature to do that. I just have this natural inclination to write something new all the time, you know. Um, and so you've got all these people all working away, doing this original stuff. But how were they to know how it fared against all the other people writing original stuff in different places? Abbey Road was not far away, but we never went up there. Um, it was quite an insularity. There was, there was a very island mentality to the BBC at that time, but because they prided themselves on being self-sufficient. And in every department, there was the similar thing. In Kingswood Warren, which was the engineering innovative engineering establishment, um, I'm told they had exactly the same issues, that in fact they had a rather monastic sort of existence and came up with solutions to problems that actually maybe sometimes turned out to be problems that had been solved by somebody else, um, but outside the BBC. <laughs> and so you did run the risk of actually that happening, but a lot of the time it did mean that when you did come up with something new and original, that's what it was, you know, but that you did run the risk of it being um, a parallel thing to, to somebody else's shop. Sure. No, that makes sense. Well, you talk of it as, a, as, as an island. Tell me about some of your fellow islanders or um, uh, sort of names to country with. Well, I, and I, I mean, Paddy was there when I uh, got the job. I, I went on attachment there for three months. And uh, when I went on attachment, John Baker was still there. And I, I sat in with John Baker a couple of days with him working away in his in, you know, in amazing style that he used and, and seeing how he did it. And uh, by the time I actually got the job, which was about eight or nine months later, uh, he'd actually left. Uh, and there had been one or two people leaving around that time and Roger Lim had got one of the jobs and I, I actually got the other one. So by the time I actually got there, uh, Paddy was there, Roger was there, Malcolm Clark, Richard Yeoman Clark. Um, I think Glynis Johns was there or was about to be there. I think maybe she turned up slightly after me. Uh, Delia had left, although I did meet Delia several times, um, but she had left. Um, and we had three engineers, uh, 
it then went down to two. So it was quite a, a reasonable sized department. There wasn't a deputy, there was just Desmond Briscoe, there wasn't a deputy, um, and, a, and a secretary in the office. And I think, in fact, it, it totaled 12 people at that stage. So there was quite a few of us. So um, what sort of characters were, I suppose, the, the, the two that uh, worked on Doctor Who specifically were Malcolm Cl- Oh, well, Malcolm Clark, Paddy and and Roger Lim. Yes. So what yeah. sort of characters and what sort of relation, working relationship did you have with those guys? Um, Malcolm was a completely unique, unique guy. There, there will only ever be one Malcolm Clark, and he's the sort of guy that you would really miss if he wasn't there. We do miss him, but he could sometimes be so difficult. You know, he was uh, temperamentally difficult to work with if you, if you were working with him on things, because he'd have a very particular set of ways of doing things and he wouldn't necessarily agree with the way that you were doing it which was I was absolutely fine about but I don't think he was too happy to be that eclectic I think he he was very very um, driven in a certain way of doing things and, and but that led to his style of stuff I mean I still greatly uh, admire his um, Malcolm Bradbury but but one thing he did with that um, it was based on a, a Malcolm Bradbury short story about an empty house the owner of which had suffered in a nuclear holocaust but the house had survived with all the automated devices in the house still working and we're, we're treated to, to moving through the house with a narrator hearing all these devices going about their business as if the owner was still there um, which is an absolute gift for, for radiophonic treatment um, Malcolm did a fantastic job I mean, but it, what he did was something that I think several of us has done after and I've done it quite recently with um, Tim Exile's uh, plug-in called The Mouth. Uh, the very first time I used it, I wrote something that I was really, really pleased with. The very first time. And Malcolm got the big vocoder out of its box and immediately did that piece with it. And <clears throat> You use things in a naive way when you first use them. You don't have to understand how to use them you don't even have to understand the reason why they were made actually all you're doing is you're just faced with this thing which is just intriguing and you just start using it and you find out what it can do that excites you and you just go with it you know and uh, uh, that's what happened to Malcolm with that and the result was fantastic the opening of the piece is what sounds like an, an electronic atmosphere that gradually coalesces into the sound of a voice, but very slowly. You're just gradually aware that this is a slightly robotic female voice wishing the owner of the house happy birthday. And it's, it's just magical stuff. And he just discovered there was a button on the, on the vocoder called freeze, that if you had it up full, would would freeze one of the sounds it was trying to make into a sort of mush and you could just back off the, the knob gradually and it would start to talk 
the words that were passing through the machine uh, in electronic form. When I uh, used um, the mouth, um, which is a native instrument plugin, um, a similar thing happened really. I didn't really know how it worked at all. And um, I started um, playing around with it and, and started singing some falsetto notes in it, which started to work rather well with some inbuilt harmonies that were there. And that got me interested in the harmonies that worked and those that didn't. And that eventually wrote a piece of music uh, because it, it did it from the back door rather than the front door, uh, which is actually really rewarding to do because you don't even know where it's going either. <laughs> so I, I, I really enjoyed doing that. And I think we're, in this next year we're probably going to do that piece in concert, actually. So. Oh, well, that's a natural progression. So, yes, because you're doing that now, the, the, the radiophonic workshops have been on the road. They have. So, uh, have you been enjoying Because uh, you were talking about how, you know, you were very interested in the recording side of this, but now, you, you know, yeah, this is live, yeah, yeah, live it's a bit, performance. Well, I tell unplugged. you what. No, it's, uh, yes, we're plugged. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, when we did it, we did the Roundhouse in 2009 as a one off uh, live mm. performance. And I'm already on record saying that I was not happy about that experience from my point of view. The audience absolutely had a ball. Everybody enjoyed it. But I wasn't very happy with the fact that, that I'd forgotten what a long time it had been since I'd been on stage. <laughs> and uh, since then, I've been really hankering after um, doing it in a way that I, that I was happy with. And... Uh, the opportunity arrived, really, in that Marquez um, talked at length with uh, Cliff Jones, who has ended up as our manager, uh, with a view to us doing some more concerts. And to cut a long story short, it all came together very nicely. And I, th I think, I can't remember exactly how many we've done, but... It's certainly about 17 or 18 concerts, um, and we've been all over the show, um, certainly all over the UK, but we've, we've done Dublin and Stockholm and Jersey, uh, and uh, had a really good time, actually. Uh, very very hair-raising at times. Uh, we did Glastonbury, and, uh, you know... That's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> and setting up uh, on the Glade stage in Glastonbury, uh, you know, you're given three quarters of an hour it's like saying you know it's like taking the radiophonic workshop out of Maida Vale onto a couple of lorries and saying right you've got three quarters of an hour to put that on stage <laughs> it felt a bit like that but it, it's been very uh, intricately put together so that everything talks to everything else there's quite a lot of live uh, in the business we call them patch changes which are just turning a lot of instruments into different sounds instantaneously on the spot uh, and a, an awful lot of live changes happen during the uh, course of the concert and uh, we're really enjoying it so next year um, we, we've got an album we've, we've actually got all the material for an album and that hopefully will be with us next year and we'll be doing some concerts on the back of that that's and, the and idea how, what was the response in Glastonbury? oh great audience great audience I mean what is really really nice for us is that this audience 
only a small proportion of them are our age. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's face it, uh, you know, any greater proportion, and they would have died off by now. But uh, no, it, it is actually uh, very rewarding in the sense that an awful lot of young people interested in retro synths. They love seeing the gear on stage, and we're using uh, some vintage gear, but it's being controlled through digital means. So we've got the best of both worlds, really. And uh, even my students at the film school, uh, you know, annually I I do them a a talk about all such things, and uh, there's a lot of interest. So, And when we did Dublin in particular... um, it was really notable that after the concert, uh, we, we did some signings, and the queue was stretched way out, and an awful lot of them were young people, which is really, really nice. And it's, it's very nice to, to, to realise that these, these people are, are aware of the fact that the ideas that we're hearing these days come from my developed, I'm not saying they're the same, but they developed from previous ideas with when the gear was a lot harder to use and and things were slightly out of tune, etc., <laughs> etc. Et and uh, it's, it's, it's very rewarding for us. We're enjoying it, yeah. Well, that, that sort of brought us up to date with, uh, with um, uh, the, the live stage work. And, of course, you did the... Um, you did, you also the radiophonic workshop was represented at the at the big Doctor Who concert with all the modern music, and you had eight minutes to go through. That's right. The previous twenty years. That's right. Years. And and I even blew the horn of Russell on. I might add, <laughs> uh, since we were talking about that earlier. But uh, yeah, Mark and I had a hair raising experience. <laughs> uh, it was it was great to do. Uh, I must admit, I went to the Bob Dylan concert recently. Uh, my wife and I went, and as we approached the Albert Hall, I got butterflies. <laughs> Actually, was reliving <laughs> playing in the Doctor Who prom just by approaching the Albert Hall. Um, I, it was it was quite nerve wracking, but that's not to say it wasn't great fun. I mean, you know, it's an experience of a lifetime to to be in, albeit a small part of a very large orchestra. But nevertheless, playing to that many excited people in that venue was absolutely amazing. Uh, and, and you could see, you could just about make out, because obviously the lights are on you, so you can't see all of the audience, but you can, every now and then you make out a little group. And very often there was a, um, a kid on the shoulders of his dad and it wasn't just the kid who had that look of astonishment on his face. You know, the dad did as well. It, it, was, it was very good stuff. It was lovely. And it was a fantastic show. Um, when we um, did the dress rehearsal in the day, uh, clearly, as you've already said, we were only on for eight minutes. Uh, so we had the enormous privilege of actually sitting in the audit- an empty auditorium listening to the whole of this concert with all bells and whistles, all the videos, all the Cybermen coming on and all the rest of it. Fantastic. Really, really excellent. So we actually were aware of what a great time the audience were having, which was really nice. Well, let's take this quickly then, go through the the programme that uh, has led us to here. Um, Kinder, directed by Peter Grimway, you have a very long and strange sequence with 
ticking clocks and video effects and uh, uh, and the sort of the, the destruction of the universe, but all done in a jungle in a BBC studio. Yes. So that was one you had to fill, I guess, with lots of ominous. You had to fill what the pictures were limited in how they could tell it. I guess. Yeah, I think it probably in the in the classic Who stuff, um, uh, and this is in no way being critical of the visuals, but you know the state of technology in those days was such that you couldn't do anything you liked visually. And um, and I think I always thought that was one reason why the Daleks never went upstairs, really, because these days they can do that so easily visually, but they could never have done it then. Um, and yes, you were called upon to to be the glue that held the thing together. And actually, to go back to what I was saying earlier, that was really nice to be called upon to do such an important job as that, really. Yes. So I, I think that these days music sometimes gets taken a bit more for granted because uh, times have moved on. You don't need it to do those sort of jobs. But because it was doing the, 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 that task originally, it, it could be fuller, it, it could have a lot of strings to its bow, pardon the pun, uh, and, and it, do a lot of jobs at once, which I think was great fun to do, really, for us. And, and it meant that you were, you know, when people actually... Uh, say, group of the production crew got together, you were quite valued. You were a valued member of it because you were contributing quite a lot. You know. I'm curious, music, for example, there's a story called The King's Demons, which has a lute player. Yeah. Um, and you're doing an historical drama, albeit with um, yes. a time lord in yes. it, but using radiophonic music. Yes. There's never a temptation to go throw away the synthesizer and use. Uh, uh, and oh, I tell you what, uh, Nat. I love I love mixing the two things. Um, there was a I, I bet everybody's forgotten this now, but it's so memorable sequence in a Neil Innes program. I always mention this because I think this sums up exactly what I find exciting. It was just simply a spaceman wandering through an old room and putting a gramophone on. Um, which to me just sums up the whole interest of doing synth and live instruments or, or vintage sounds with synth coming out of it. Um, in Warrior's Gate, in the gardens, I was actually doing quite classical Debussy-style scales and things that occasionally people notice. I love mixing old ideas with new ideas and seeing what happens. Uh, and one of the tracks uh, on the album um, starts off with an automaton mouthing some words that's, that turns into electronics. Uh, and I love, I love all that. It's just something that interests me. Well, Two Doctors has a bit of that, doesn't it? Because you've got all this sort of authentic Spanish music. Yes. And then you've got a great theme that you have for the Sontarans, which that's is all right. some yeah. alien bombast. Yes. yes, so you're, you're discovering my, my uh, obsession, really. <laughs> I love... I love seeing what happens when you put two ingredients together that you wouldn't normally expect and, and that in turn will, will give you a further idea so it's a catalyst for being creative really doing that so okay well um, you have a train to catch so we have to we'll, we'll, um, we'll ask the most important question of all which is what is your charity and uh, uh, that you would because you have given your time so we ask the listeners to donate to a charity of your choice for nostalgic reasons, uh, I, I choose Oxfam simply because 
that's who I used to give some of my royalties to when I earned a lot more royalties. Oh, bless you. <laughs> bless you. And what do you listen to, to yourself, Peter? What's your music? If you were, if you were to, you know, hang up your... When, when, when you put the day job to sleep, what, what, how do you enjoy music in your leisure time? Is it I'm very eclectic. Very eclectic. Uh, I, I'm a bit of a butterfly. Uh, I love... Um, being able to play music on long journeys and had a complete Pink, Pink Floyd journey the other day uh, and I, I, it's difficult to be particular because I mean I do like anything that attracts me uh, Morkiba, I like the band Morkiba a lot I love the, the melodic voice with, with the very spare beats underneath, fantastic so all sorts of different things interest me these days and I, I think that there are so many good artists around it would be silly to say only one was any good and and so many of those artists are being so innovative that uh, it makes it all the more impressive that they're the slightest bit interested in what we do <laughs> well you I've been more than interested in so much that I've taken up double the time I promised I would to. I think this will be two episodes. So uh, what's your message to the listening Doctor Who fans, Peter? It was convened to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. We've gone beyond 50 now. What's your message to the Doctor Who fans? Uh, carrying on, carry on being as loyal as you have been. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that when I uh, occasionally more often recently do appearances I'm absolutely struck what a really nice bunch of people you are. Well, bless you. Well, we couldn't couldn't attend appearances if nice people like you didn't turn up and, and help us out, and uh, and also for being the voice of uh, the soundtrack of my childhood, Peter <laughs> Howell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you. That's amazing. That will be two episodes. That's incredible. Thank you. Uh, my thanks to Peter. That was very interesting, and uh, he gave a lot of his time, a lot more than he'd bargained for, I think. So, please give a lot more than they've bargained for to Oxfam uh, in uh, Peter's honour, oxfam.org.uk. They have a donate page. You can also call them on 0300 200 1300, 0300 200 1300. It's a good number, isn't it? Uh, more Who's Round next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening. You can still catch The Golden Age of American Radio, which I presented on Radio 4 Extra uh, a few weeks ago on iPlayer. Uh, three hours of archive treats, some great comedy, a bit of sci-fi, and some interesting behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, you can give that a listen. The Golden Age of American Radio. Uh, but you might be fed up with the sound of my voice, so I'll shut... soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. We interrupt your regular programmes for a word from our sponsor. Hello, this is the Doctor. The Tenth Doctor Adventures, Volume 2. Rose! Thought you'd show your face, did you? No, you seem to be doing all right. <laughs> Maybe if you stood still, you'd find it less draining. Yes, it's a fencing match, mon ami, what? not a Highland gym. Yes. Unquestionably the most lauded operatic tenor of the modern age. Oh. <laughs> Amazing. Is he? Oh, no. Why am I in a cage? Calm down. 
Panicking won't help. Calm down? What earthly reason have I to be calm? Ah, it's no good. Come on, we've got to go. What is I it? I saw a ship. A ship? What sort of ship? Oh, come on. Come on! How many of them should we kill, do you think? How many? Why, all of them, of course. Doctor! I knew it! One chance! That's all Rose Tyler ever needs.